Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people who I want to thank right now, including Melissa Davis, Matthias Mall, Sean Plasted, Burned, and Neil Parker. Join them and me and the rest of the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, live salons, free admission to live events, and our Team Human team feed with special interviews, talks, and rare conversations. We're even starting a weekly group meditation, delayed by my recent bout with the plague, but no more. See you there. You're on Team Human, Consciousness Expansion Beyond the Machine. This is where we establish an appropriate set and setting for the journey ahead, where we find the other others, forge solidarity, and finally find the right table in the mythic middle school cafeteria. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, two of the founding members of psychedelic watchdog group Symposia, Nishay Devineau and David Nichols. Institutions that have the most power right now have shown themselves to be constitutionally incapable of responding meaningfully to harm, and they're attached to bad ideas that are not evidence-based, that for whatever ideological, spiritual reasons they feel very strongly attached to, and they're causing harm. Nishay and David are going to help us evaluate the current psychedelic renaissance, as well as those who may be abusing the power that's unleashed by these substances. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all already on Team Human. I was a member of the psychedelic counterculture back in the 1980s, when pretty much every mind-expanding substance was illegal. And for us, that illegality was just an obstacle. You know, taking 
A psychedelic or growing a marijuana plant was not considered a stand against a draconian legal system and repressive government, but simply a way of getting what we wanted in spite of a draconian legal system and repressive government. So many of us who witnessed the very end of the 60s and the eventual sellout of the yuppies, we kind of gave up on politics and revolution. The hippies, they became Bill Clinton, who, as far as I was concerned, was as bad as Ronald Reagan, you know, in some ways worse. Another version of him anyway. Now, the, the object of the game for us at that point was to be more like the people in Rick Linkletter's movie Slacker. You just kind of earn enough money to pay for food and rent so you can spend your time reading philosophy, hanging out with friends, and doing trippy things. I remember Timothy Leary once telling us not to invite a particularly ardent leftist to a party at his house because he said, Marxists don't know how to have fun, right? He didn't want his acid trip overly inflected by the oppression of the proletariat because he believed that Marxism was inherently anti-psychedelic. And by the 90s, when LSD and its epic Aristotelian journey through the intellectual crucible was replaced by ecstasy and MDMA and its more delightfully open-ended love vibe, it became easier to ignore the political implications of what we were doing. You know, the rock and roll had become electronica, and Unbeknownst to most of the the revelers and promoters, the rave parties were were they were actually a reclamation of public space. These were mostly free, illegal parties and an alternative to the expensive nightclub scene and professional entertainment and status-centric culture. But we didn't really articulate that. No, most of the leaders of the scene, they were actively trying to make psychedelics apolitical. This was the period immediately after punk, and what was left of the counterculture had become really disenchanted with opposition. It seemed that everything the counterculture did was a reaction to whatever the overculture did. They were either creating culture to oppose Reagan or the Queen or consumerism or corporations or creating culture that could somehow avoid being co-opted by MTV and the mall. And it all seemed so hopelessly binary and polarizing and oppositional, you know, particularly on ecstasy. Those of us in the rave community, we pretty explicitly rejected that approach. We were just going to dance over here, connect with each other, and maybe make contact with some aliens. It felt as if politics was a trap. A movement would sacrifice the moment. Somehow, it felt like what we were doing was bigger than left-right politics. We thought we could make one big party and promote the agenda of no agenda to, to, as Terrence McKenna said, to rise from the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness. And that wouldn't involve voting booths or street protests. And this attitude, it, it dovetailed all too well with John Barlow telling the psychedelic internet that his declaration of 
independence of cyberspace was in all of our best interests. It declared us a free nation, uh, of actually free of nation states altogether, and, and of other political bodies. We thought it was an expression of anarchy, because we didn't really know enough about economics to recognize it as libertarian. Getting rid of nations and governments ultimately just gives free reign to corporations, but but we didn't get that yet. We all thought the Grateful Dead lyricist was just helping us make the net psychedelic and fun and human-driven. But we were wrong. And as psychedelics make a new comeback, this time with the support of the psychotherapeutic and investment communities alike, we have to be more conscious of the politics, the economics, and the power at stake. And that's why I've been so intrigued and even inspired by the work coming from a psychedelic watchdog organization called Symposia and their terrific, if terrifying podcast power trip, rather than blindly celebrating the integration of psychedelics into business and medicine, they're looking at who is administering these chemicals, what are their agendas, and how are their results being measured, and which entities are maneuvering to monopolize the space through patents. And maybe most important of all, they're looking at what Timothy Leary would have called the set and setting in which today's psychedelic renaissance is occurring? Is it one of love, mutual aid, and collective development? Or is it about control and profit and further domination? This matters. All we need to do is look at the history of the internet for what happens when we cheer the adoption of a new technology with too little regard for who is seizing power or how it is actually affecting people. So let's do it right this time. And to that end, I've invited Nishay Devineau and David Nichols to speak with us here on Team Human. Nishay is the Medicine, Society, and Culture Postdoctoral Scholar in Bioethics at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And David is Managing Editor of Symposia, an underground researcher, and a harm reduction advocate. Welcome and thanks for being on Team Human. There's so much to talk about here. So first, Nishay, you worked on the Timothy Leary papers for the New York Public Library? Yeah. But yeah. You know, I was fun. on the other <laughs> side of that. In oh, really? California, 1994, 95, oh. 96, packing the boxes in the no garage, trying to make lists and figure out how the hell to deal with it. It's a, lot, it's a big ask to sort that amount of material. I know it's massive, but so much fun. I did a thing with somebody at the library and they said, as your payback for doing it, you get to see the Timothy Leary papers. And it was so <laughs> funny because it was like, I put this in that box. Yeah, but so, <laughs> so if someone wants to go, you go look, you'll see like the ticket from the last Pink Floyd show that Timothy <laughs> went to is in there. I mean, notes from Al Jorgensen about trying to get off heroin, uh, uh, remnants of fentanyl patches. I mean, there's just... 
very cool stuff in there. And it was just so when I saw that, and it just everything feels full circle to me. So sorry if I'm <laughs> emotional and strange. But no, no, Dave, it's great. so good. I'm so glad I'm on. I don't need to say it like this, but it's scary to say it. But I'm so glad I'm on your side. I mean, <laughs> ditto. ditto. <laughs> I mean, first, it's, it's nice to know that you're here. When I saw you as a psychedelic watchdog organization, it reminded me first of, um, I didn't know if you ever heard of the Center for Cognitive Liberties. It was the CCCL, something like that. And it was basically, we, we literalized, I was, I was part of it. It was Rice Sententia, a lawyer in, in San Francisco, ran it. And it was, had two things. One, it was to help people be allowed to take whatever drugs they wanted to take. But it was also, to Timothy Leary's second law of psychedelics, not to make anyone take a drug they didn't want to take. So they were doing a lot of work in the prisons where people were being experimented on with psychological drugs for, you know, maintenance of behavior or whatever. And they were like, no, no, if someone doesn't want to take a drug, even if they're a prisoner, you're not allowed to fuck with their consciousness. So, it was, you know, the idea of that we should have a, a cognitive liberty was, was really important, but it was, we were fighting against very different things. So now the dream in some ways because of Michael Pollan and all the wonderful people doing all this stuff, the dream of my 1970s and 80s psychedelic experience has come true. People in the mainstream, moms and pops and shrinks and presidents all want to do psychedelics and see things. And, and it's like the same thing that happened when people got turned on to the internet. And it's like, yay, now they're logging on. <laughs> and then they ran with it in this very awful way you know basically a, a, a kind of uh, uh, dominators and capitalists change the set and setting from fun and exploration and love and understanding to extraction profit control surveillance and it feels like you're trying to <laughs> fight that <laughs> The question of hierarchy and how psychedelic experiences of interconnection are entirely compatible with connection to hierarchy was the, part of the motivation for a paper I co-wrote with uh, Dr. Brian Pace at The Ohio State University on uh, titled Right Wing Psychedelia. And because there's all of this PR from, you know, psychedelic corporate folks talking about, you know, if we if we just scale up access to psychedelic experience as quickly and widely as possible will fix the world's problems. And so it justifies these big corporations that are moving fast and breaking things because this kind of end justifies the means logic is fueling. Right. One tab of blotter per child. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, basically. And and if you question, we, we've been running into this at Symposia, if you question that impulse, you're often framed as like you are threatening like the solution to climate the change. Movement. I like, hear that, but the yeah, but the 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 sensitivity to set and setting conditions means that narcissists and other people who are driven by power and have a big ego can have an experience of interconnection where they realize that they are here to be on the top and leading the charge and they're here to kind of build the skilled golem and be you know running running the show right 
I mean, but that's, it's interesting because it's the same conversation I had with people back in the early internet days, that I was enthusiastic about the net, but really concerned when I would talk to, you know, whether it was uh, uh, Kevin or Steven Johnson or Clay Shirky or Nicholas Negroponte or any of these guys, that they thought that out of the media lab or out from the elites would come the the patterns of engagement that 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 will elevate the masses to our level (laughs) the language gets hijacked the drugs get hijacked all the things get hijacked and then kind of um reassembled in a way that and this is my problem that doesn't actually make sense anymore things it feels like things get reassembled in such a way as to resonate and make us go huh and in that moment of huh they kind of, oh, good, You're now you're destabilized, so we're going to sell you this or get you in our cult or get you to buy our patented version of ketamine or something. Do you know what I mean? It's almost as if the same ideas that we are trying to use to, to understand the present, really, to understand the world, is being used to confabulate a, a future that doesn't exist, well, I think that's part of why, or just real quick, yeah, part of why a major c- component of what we try to do at Symposia falls under the rubric of what we have termed ideological harm reduction. When you teach people to close read in that way, you know, you can start to discern when people are behaving in ways that are only serving their interests and to kind of help educate through community building, you know, to help people build that kind of immune response uh, collectively, you know, as a as a resistance to those tactics. But I think that that it, it, it requires kind of poking holes in the dominant paradigms and, and justifications and kind of master narratives that are being shared by the people who are trying to use these technologies in those ways. And I think you also find that sort of mishmash, right? That that the notion that like we have a we have a crisis of meaning making, and we're now going to talk in circles about what that is without ever coming back to our material conditions. And there will never be, you know, you'll sort of wind up with these historical platitudes. Like one of the things I find so fascinating about, say, Daniel Schmachtenberger, is that he he presents this history of the world, which seems to sort of trace through Europe, kind of level any sort of nuance or complexity, totally acknowledge anything that 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 doesn't like conform to a simple teleological narrative of what society and civilization are. And yet when you point out to the people following this, that this is a totally ahistorical narrative of how we've come to be where we are, um, you're not engaging in good faith. You, you're, you're not like grasping the, the center of his argument. You're focusing on the details. And yet it's like, well, if the whole thing is structured around, there's a, a crisis of meaning making because we're not willing to listen to each other or whatever. And I'm, here trying to listen and and ask where these omissions or why these omissions are allowed but there's no discussion around that like it it sets the terrain and seeds them as authorities on meaning making in ways where as soon as you step into the conversation you're playing on their playground you're in their sandbox and they get to set all of the terms and the rules and it sort of uh, falls apart from there yeah i mean that's why i i mean years ago i got in trouble i was trying to argue with um uh, Richard Dawkins and some other uh, uh, scientism believers, you know, 
about, you know, my more psychedelic, I was always the weirdo in the room, you know, the weirdo artist who's psychedelic person who believes that there's something else going on here, something more subtle, something collective, some, you know, I don't need to call it like ESP or anything strange, but just more than meets the eye and uh, trying to call attention to the kind of reductionist reality tunnel that they were using to verify any, any claim. And, um, they really, they treated me as if I was crazy, a, a truly a crazy person. Finally, you know, I, I tried to argue that maybe the universe is just kind of leaning towards something. And they said, oh, well, you're, you're a moralist. You know, it was like as if it was this name. I was like looking up on the Wikipedia. What is a moralist? Am I a moralist? Is it as if to have any... I mean, they needed to read Wittgenstein, I guess, is what they, I mean, I don't know to show you, right? I mean, that, 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 uh, that meaning comes from a community of people, you know, sharing, you know, common values. It, it comes from the bottom up and, and we create meaning, but that doesn't mean it's not, it's not as real. You don't need reciprocal altruism to prove that I want to share something with you, right? Once you step out or once you, once you try to engage with some of like these types of of world builders or whatever you want to call them from a more sort of egalitarian perspective and and by egalitarian perspective in this context i mean like using let's say non-specialized or less specialized language trying to talk to the conceptual realities trying to just like engage in a discussion about experience or material realities or what have you like they seem opposed to that yeah. I, I find it fascinating to read through the comment section and see how many people are like commenting on how little they understand or how smart they must uh, be because as an observer, they don't understand what's being said. It happened. I mean, this is what happened to me again in college where it's supposed to happen. Um, <laughs> sophomore year, they gave me um, Rollin Bart. Do you know this guy? And he had just like this, the, signi this, the signified and the signifier and the symbol. And you go, and I'm reading that at the same time that I'm reading Brecht and going, oh, everything goes meta. And then it's like the object of the game when you're having a conversation is, oh, can I go meta on you? So then I go meta on you. And then the eyes glaze over moment happens in the other person until they can kind of recover and then try to go meta on me. But the more meta we go... You know, you can win the meta argument, but you've gotten further and further away from David. What you keep calling the material, both of you, you you've both <laughs> used the term material conditions, the conditions on the ground of actual, what is happening now, right now. So, okay, all your stuff is fine, but right now there's a woman being abused. Right now mm -hmm. there's a, a South American country who is no longer has sustainable agriculture. Right now there's a guy putting a patent on a fucking analog of a working safe psychedelic substance, wanting to make a less safe substance and then make the real one illegal so he can <laughs> sell the fucking fake patented one and make a zillion dollars off it. The whole issue I have one of the issues I have with the sense making thing is it seems more like like what what happens when you don't have a material analysis that you are kind of adrift and buffeted around between different people's views of reality and because you don't have that analysis to anchor you in reality it's like you build all of these tertiary systems to make sense of the competing narratives, but that doesn't actually get you closer to material reality in the underlying conditions. Cause it's like, it's almost like they want a world where you can get 
abusers and victims to like see things eye to eye as if that's the solution that people just don't don't see things in the same way. And it's actually it's actually not we don't see that as being <laughs> as being the path forward. The, the radical centrism, this notion that we can bring perpetrators and victims together and no one has to give anything up yeah. in order to resolve this. You don't have to surrender your power or privilege, your ability to do harm. And let's be re- and then you get this sort of like the equating of speaking up about harm with doing harm. Like for me, the the quote that's been coming up a lot lately is Malcolm X, you know, that's not a chip on my shoulder, that's your foot on my neck. And it's like, you know, at the point where people, particularly in psychedelic spaces, it happens elsewhere, we encounter it, I think, most commonly and ongoingly in psychedelic spaces, because that's where we're at at the moment. But it is this notion that like, if you speak up about harm, or if you claim that somebody is doing harm, you are doing at least as much harm as that person. And I think like, for me, to, to, to your point earlier about like, you know, uh, like this all ties back into some of my own psychedelic experiences where coming down from this perfected, unitive experience of, oh my God, there's only this moment and everything is perfect in this moment exactly as it is. And I come down and I'm looking around my, my you know, room and I'm like, well, shit, like here's a bunch of technology that only exists because of mining and refining and exploitation and all of it's done down the barrel of a gun. And like, so all of the people who produce this and manufactured this are like out there suffering. And if everything's perfect, well, I'm, I'm claiming their suffering in this moment is also perfect. And that seems fucked up. So like, there's a tension here. H- how do I resolve that tension? You know, like I, I, I come crashing out of this beautiful transcendent state into material reality and, and a felt need to do something about that, especially if existence can be so beautiful. I mean, it gets you to the place. I remember again, way back, but I remember tripping and thinking, okay, I am not going to trip again until I'm living a life where there's nothing I can look at and have a bad trip about. (laughs) (laughs) How'd that go? Didn't it? It 20 years later, I was like, okay, I give up. Um, Because there's going to be something. There's a tin can. There's, you know, something somewhere that's going to, you know, you can't, that perfect hygiene is not, is not quite possible, you know? But I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in is given that, it seems like, and I'm, this might not be your intent, but it seems like the 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 work that you've done in the the I want to call them the audio documentaries, which they're not podcasts. They are this is you know audio doc. This is real real radio. I mean it's real. It's it's it. Everyone should hear hear all of them, um, and the the afterglows, if I can call it that, and the pillow talk. Um, <laughs> it's what it is. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, it is because uh, it's that intense. Uh, what are what are what are we call for on the kind of the three levels of critique you're making? First, what do we? Yes, you should have a psychedelic experience. Do a little bit. Do some mushrooms. Something mild to start. You know, and 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 is psychedelic therapy is it just just ugh, don't, don't should what what should we do about psychedelic therapy and the popularization of it? Do we want government? Uh, regulation? Do we want the, 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 I don't know who controls the food and drug administration? Do we want the, the ADA, the dentists? I don't know. Um, what, what do we do about psychedelic therapy, which is sort of almost out of the gate? So I guess a question, uh, to your question, have you ever had psychedelic therapy? 
Not with a therapist. <laughs> well, okay, so, 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 exactly, right, right, full, full stop. Mm. So this, this is part of the point, right? Like, like I'm not, I want to be clear, like I'm not opposed to the idea that psychedelic therapy might, could be a thing at some point. More research is needed. Like, you know, I would say I'm, I'm agnostic on the question of could there be a solid evidence-based psychedelic assisted psychotherapy that actually like, you know, engages with uh, psychotherapeutic norms or standards or ethics in in a reasonable way. That's not what we currently have. Um, there have been some very small studies that propose some very, you know, basically set out this premise of psychedelic assisted therapy is radically different. So the psychotherapy can be radically different. We can bring in touch. We can bring in um, all sorts of weird non-evidence-based methodologies. Like, and, and there's this presumption that we need relief now. So quick, let's scale it up. Let's make sure that everyone has access. Never mind that we don't even have Medicare for all in the US, right? right? So like there's there's this reality where it's like I've heard people talk about in Oregon the notion that they're going to legalize mushroom psilocybin therapy and that that should be made available to communities who don't currently have access to healthcare because this is a healthcare intervention. And it's like healthcare for what? What what conditions based on what evidence? Like you want to do healthcare for for underserved communities, get on to Medicare care for all like like let's actually build out systems like that that deliver those sorts of health outcomes and then you know so start with medicare for all and then like revolution right like then then let's restructure our social relations in ways that actually preclude some of the systemic harms but when it comes to psychedelic therapy i, I would assume we've all had therapeutic experiences on psychedelics but not in a a formalized context right but we've also all had uh, psychologically or physically abusive experiences under psychedelics outside therapy i've tripped with assholes who've abused me you know one way or another during the trip we can't stop bad things from happening in life but right now we have systems in place where bad behavior is rewarded and reinforced. And so that to me is like the problem. Cause it's like, if we lived in a society where people took more responsibility and, and cared for each other in a way, bullies wouldn't rise to the top to the point that they have. And like with this, the, going back to the psychedelic therapy question, the institutions that have the most power right now have shown themselves to be constitutionally incapable of responding meaningfully to harm. And they're attached to bad ideas that are not evidence-based that for whatever ideological, spiritual reasons they feel very strongly attached to, and they're causing harm. And there's no there's no willingness on the part of many of these organizations to do that introspective work. So to me, it's like it, the bigger picture is like if we can change the systems that we have in place in the institutions. So like with Harvey Weinstein, like for a long time, it was just part of the system of Hollywood where it's like, well, if you want to get an Oscar, you need to put up with this. And this is just everyone knows it is just quietly tolerated. That's how it is right now in, in this world of psychedelic institutions. And I feel like we can get to a place where suddenly bullying is like an, a, a kind of an embarrassing thing that like, wow, like you need to work on that. And it's not something that's rewarded. And this is kind of a big question, but I don't mean it as so big. I always identified the thing that I'm doing with psychedelics and my, my posse as, oh, once I find the psych, once I get to Princeton, it's going to be a horrible place. But once I find the psychedelic people, I'll be okay. Right. Cause <laughs> they're the psych, they, we know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know we get the thing. And 
what what I'm finding out now, I could go to Burning Man and meet Eric Schmidt, you know, fucking CIA, Google, God knows what evil thing, tripping in his RV with his servants and his, you know, mind molybdenum robot slaves. And it's like, okay, so that means that the thing I'm talking about is not the psychedelic insight because they have this, they're doing it too and having the totally different thing. So what is... This is such a hard, what is this, what we have in common? Is it social justice? Is it an understanding of, of, of the meek? Is it, is it Christianity? Is it Judaism? Do you know what I mean? What is, what is this sensibility that we recognize in one another if it's not the psychedelic sensibility? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I still identify with the like psychedelic label even though it's <laughs> it's also kind of claimed by people who have very different goals and want to kind of build their palace in the sky you know with that kind of psychedelic leader thing but you know one one phrase that we have been using i forget where it originated but it's like find the other others so not just find the others but find the other yeah. others that's like emphasizing that that aspect of you know i think there might be some elements of neurodivergence involved there of like kind of seeing focusing on like Richard Doyle uses the term like ecodelic instead of psychedelic where it's like looking at the relations between things and the connectedness between things and I really like that because I think that there is that ability to show kind of draw attention to or as Alan Watts would say like figure and ground simultaneously or like the nested fractal scale simultaneously and I think that there's that implicit value of psychedelics to draw things in that direction and kind of focus on the interrelation in an egalitarian non-hierarchical sense but due to the sensitivity of set and setting conditions and the sensitivity to initial rhetorical conditions as, as richard doyle says that's a potentiality that needs to be focused on and so it gets right. back to a concept i really like from altered carbon which um they really talk about control of the construct where it's like the same situation rhetorically can be framed in dramatically different ways that like completely changes who has power and who and how that power can be wielded mm. potential of using psychedelics to change the construct is what I'm personally interested in. Right. Well, there's just this Heidegger quote that I find interesting just related to some of the stuff that we were just talking about. It's fr it's from contributions to philosophy and he's saying in this quote, uh, how to find being, do we have to light a fire in order to find fire? Or do we not have rather to be content with, above all, protecting the night so that the false days of everydayness are restrained, whose most false ones are those that believe also to know and possess the night when they light up the night and eliminate it with their borrowed light. And I feel like, to me, that quote, it relates to, it's like there is something emerging and shifting and changing. And in this flux and all of this kind of uncertainty and suggestibility, there are people who are seeking to kind of grab the ring of power. But it's like if we are kind of keeping alert for these power plays and are willing to call them out as they are kind of cropping up and just have the patience to be in community with each other with no tolerance for hierarchical enforcements of power and abuse, we will be able to roll with the punches. And there's a sort of like... Um, you know, emperor's new clothes element where it's like you just need one person to be able to point to 
there with through the analysis of like actually this person doesn't have any right to do- domineer over all of us that it can keep those in check long enough for us to build systems that are kind of resilient and community based in 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 place of those things and sometimes that takes ridicule like sometimes right. and that's another reason you know like like some of these people don't deserve respect and the things that they are doing are so like fundamentally absurd that like for me as a coping mechanism making fun of it or like pointing out the utter absurd not only is the emperor naked but people are are having conversations about how absolutely fantabulously over the top his new threads are <laughs> and it's like like that deserves a certain amount of but ridicule the, the, the thing we want to be able to do is pre-ridicule ourselves though you know i mean rachel rosenfeld and i you know we we like to to we were both friends with mike nesmith and we really want to model our work after the monkeys you know here we come you know watching down the street you know get the funniest looks from everyone we meet you know mean any harm you know we're just you know trying to have a good time um you know the clown the the fool card in the tarot that if you kind of pre-disarm yourself if you if if we accept that we don't know that we're that we're not better than anybody else if we can hold on to the sort of the the truest anarchist insight which is that disarray that wonderful disarray that you leave the fractal as the fractal and you don't try to impose whatever pattern that you happen to have recognized on the fractal you just see that pattern then this pattern oh i see this you if you can stay in that space as an individual, it's a lot easier, you know, but, but, but you don't have to be better. No, it's not better or worse but to point ha- out harm, right? No, like to it's say, not, but it's really to- hard to hold on to that structurelessness that of anarchism, that, that fluidity. And most of us either quickly find an authority figure onto, onto whom to transfer our authority or like some of these dudes try to become that authority figure and and control the flux. I mean, it's interesting. This, there, there, there's so many great uh, critiques that you make. I mean, and and, and you, you each make them differently. Who was it that was saying, I guess it was a bunch of these guys, using kind of, there's this tendency to use like facts or features of nature to justify assholicness. <laughs> I mean, if... <laughs> Like there was someone was having and we don't need to name names. It's all right. Or we can if you want. Uh, Someone was using this conversation about how each apex predator needs a certain amount of acres or something. And therefore, in game B, we're going to give each family, you know, this amount of meters. And it's like, oh, my God. What is that? And and you know what I mean? It's a it's a You see it in addition to that example, just like with like Jordan Peterson's a classic example with like the, the lobster hierarchies and like serotonin. And it's like a selective sampling from uh, of of metaphors from nature to fit an agenda. Because there's like other examples where you can come up with a different explanation for things. But see it's it's a kind of self-serving naturalistic like fallacy in those cases. Right. And it's again, it's not based on the real conditions on the ground that we're living through. It's based on some thing, some, you know, and, and the other side, if you will, uses it too. They say, oh, we're going to be like the bonobos instead of the chimpanzees. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, so here's a great example of nature of cooperation as opposed to, you know, competition. And it's like and you could play that game till the till the, till the cows come home and it, it doesn't really make any 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 progress. I guess you know the thing the thing that that kept occurring to me as I was I was listening to your stuff, Shanae, It was was you know what what question do you feel needs to be asked now that's not being asked? 
right now, I think part of just thinking this is sort of a roundabout indirect way of answering. So I apologize. But part of what Symposier is interested in doing is like at through a collective where we're able to kind of reality check for each other dynamics that we're seeing by our kind of collectively close reading well, you know, or other organizational behaviors and responses. And we have this kind of collective knowledge that far ex- exceeds anything that in, any individual could have access to. And we're also trying to kind of create a bat signal in the sky for other victims, weirdos, misfits to be able to realize, <laughs> realize that there are <laughs> these other others out there. And there are people who are individuals who might be, you know, interested in psychedelics and they go to one of these like Burning Man events and they're like, whoa, like I'm not welcome here. And so then they leave the space and I'm interested in finding ways to create those, you know, and it's not about Symposia being the bat signal with our logo in the sky. Like that's not the, impo- that's not the intention here. And that's not how we operate. Like there's no one in charge. We all do things based on collaboration, cooperation as we are able to. Um, I draw a lot of kind of inspiration from stigmergy like the concept of how do you know much about stigmergy mm-hmm. just how you know ants can like leave traces in their environment that then could be picked up by other ants based on their availability and location to collectively build this big system together and i'm interested in finding ways to get the misfits people who have been othered by dominant society and bring them together make them feel safe because they see oh these people said something when I was being attacked. These people stood up for me and advocated for me when I didn't have the energy because I would just was just traumatized and, and assaulted and everything else. There's a trust that comes from responsibility to each other and from bearing kind of over time these onslaughts and, and seeing how people stand with you through these mm. kind of difficult times that creates the conditions of a foundation to collaborate and work together. And so it's like, I'm interested yeah. in how we, we provide those conditions and, and kind of like help connect to other people who are interested in the same sorts of collective goals. Yeah. And it's really, it's moving to hear it because um, I don't know if you know, Jenny, uh, Jenny Hardeen on, She's on Twitter a lot. She was a, uh, a a victim of a lot of stuff. And she's one of the people who called out um, Jeffrey Epstein and a lot of what was going on in that world. And um, she was getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of abuse on social networks for calling out certain things. And um, she was kind of uh, uh, talking about uh, uh, some of her abuse. And I, um, just in the DM area, I showed up for her in a way that she recognized that I had had my own experiences. She she could tell from the way I showed up for her that I was someone who had abuse in my own past. And while I'm trying to support her, her response was to support me. She's the one under fire. She was the one in being victimized. And her response was to give me support for what she recognized must have happened in my own past. And I'm like, oh, there's another kind of activity that can happen between people that I'd never experienced before. And it's not a commiserating in victimhood. It's, 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 it's something entirely different. And, I, and you're right. Solidarity. It's, it is. I guess that's what we call it. It's rapport, solidarity. Solidarity, right. And it's so real. But it's what, for those of us who were raised in regular American competitive culture, for a lot of us, psychedelics opened a portal to the possibility of solidarity yeah. that we hadn't understood before. Mm-hmm. 
And just to that earlier question, the question of what are what is the unasked question? Like for me, like, and I think it encapsulates some of this discussion. It's what do you do? Like, what do you do? Like, how do you be in the world? Like exactly. when you see, so when you go and you wind up, you know, DMing with this person and you see the way that, that you try to show up for them and they try to show up for you. And like, you realize like what is to be found in that connection and you have that spark of solidarity. And then like when you show up in spaces and you realize that there are other people who you've never met, who you've never asked who have your back and you realize, oh shit, like that's the way you choose to be in the world, despite the fact that it comes with all of the costs, uh, few of the benefits of playing the the dominant games, you know, and to then find the other others, you know, like to to find the people who are willing to be in the world like that, not because it affords some sort of like prestige or profit or power, but simply because they don't know how to be in the world any other way. Like, like for me, like finding those people and figuring out the things that we have shared interest in in building together like I don't that that was one of the things that I found so inspiring in reading Team Human like for me to bring it back to some of your work like there were moments where I felt uh, where I struggled with 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 some of what I would contend to be like a, an almost over openness where it's like well hold on Doug like this is the kind of thing that's gonna let the narcissists get the nose in the tent and sort of like you know this this is your professor saying hey let's talk about fascism <laughs> let's talk about fascists right. let's talk about some of the language that like let's talk about entryism right like but also in reading through that there's so much of that spark of of trying to like call out to the people who are interested or or who just be that way um that for me like that's the project like find the others and do what y'all do like you know yeah you know we're all still at least as americans i feel like so many of us of the other others are just looking for the table in the middle school cafeteria where we are welcome to put down your tray you know <laughs> Like you don't have to worry about, there's no price of entry. It's just, just sit here. Mm-hmm. We're weird too. It's all okay. <laughs> and how, how hard should that be? You know, how hard should that be? And it's just, boy, it's a, it's a difficult society to play, you know, to play that. When it takes that much effort to carve out the space, I mean, it's one of the reasons why, um, why it does feel important to like send out the signals of, of like, I would say personally, like, you know, do no harm, but take no shit. Like at the point where like, if, if, if people don't want to be on the other team or the other side, because they know that like, if they're trying to get away with whatever sketchy stuff, it's going to come with costs. Like one of the things Nishe and I have talked about kind of extensively is the need to put a price on bullshit. You know, if you are going to get up on stage and like just spew bullshit, like there should be a price tag attached to that. And guess what? If that price tag becomes too high and you don't want to deal with it, that's the point. You should go away. You should stop doing the terrible things you're doing and just just drop it. Right. Go do but it literally anything mean, else. It doesn't necessarily mean we go out and cancel these people or whatever, you know, because unless they're doing real, real harm, harm. I mean, we can. <laughs> it's fun. But... But but isn't there a way to help them and reform them? There's so much energy. If they've got hundreds of thousands of people, I mean, I want to go to the game B people and say yes, but you know, or or any of these folks. It's like even um, I mean, what's his name? Um, Steve Bannon wanted me to come on his podcast, right? You could have gotten the Bannon bump. <laughs> I would have gotten a Bannon bump, but for the what? I mean, my God, the the kinds of listeners I'd have to surface mm-hmm. after that might not be worth the bump. But but. So much of me wanted to think, gosh, is there anything I could do in half an hour with Steve Bannon to 
bring him around, you know, to, to, but I guess there's not. I mean, if you got in, if you guys got invited on C-Band, you wouldn't go, would you? I, I, I don't think I could. Uh... <laughs> there's other, other, others who are not currently worth the time, you know. This is real, real quick. So, in the psychedelic world, um, you know, the conference circuit, et cetera, like there's a lot of focus from the psychedelic normies in, you know, extending the benefit of the doubt to people who have caused like not just individual cases of harm, but systemic like ongoing harm um, to a lot of different people. And there's this focus on once that is kind of revealed well, everyone means well, like, let's rehabilitate the person. But oftentimes, there are really interesting people who did great work and didn't narcissistically trample everyone else to get to this place of power, some of whom have have felt the need to leave the field. And I feel like our energy is so much better spent on cultivating people that never had the impulse in the first place, rather than focusing obsessively on the people who it's like, Maybe they can just not be at the center of the spotlight for a while. You know, it's like maybe that's right. not so much to ask of people. Right. That was where I went with it myself. I was like, not that I'm going to bring attention to, to them, but why focus on, you know, unless I'm actually constructively deconstructing or, or, or reducing the harm that someone's creating, why focus on them? I mean, I could spend my same hour platforming, platforming. I mean, not that you need it, but platforming symposia to my people to be like, oh, my God, this matters. This <laughs> matters. There's a bat signal. We appreciate it, that. Yeah, no, it, it matters. But it because it matters to them. And and I guess I want people to know it matters to me. It matters to me because I've I've been disturbed and silent since the really since the first Michael Pollan book not quite knowing how to respond. I don't want to be the kid who's like not wanting his mom to find out about the internet. I remember that <laughs> moment too, you know, as an early internet, oh no, my parents come, it's going to ruin the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. And it's not that, it's not that I don't want regular people to do this stuff, but something I- internally felt like, wait a minute, there's not uh, uh, the 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 sacredness of these it's a, either the sacredness of the chemicals or the power of the chemicals or the context of these is changing i mean i and and i don't i, I didn't want to speak against it because i'm a pro psychedelic person but i didn't want to speak for it because i knew it was kind of wrong mm-hmm. and i've been so undecided on what to say and what to do for really what 10 or 15 years and it wasn't until rachel showed me what you're doing directly then I'm like oh my god you know they're they're working out this problem you know and and it's not that even you have the answer it's just like we need to initiate the honest discussion here are the harms <laughs> that are happening mm-hmm. it's real and we don't want that mm-hmm. people's lives can be ruined from the inappropriate use of this stuff and it's getting more and more rampant and if peter thiel gets his way god knows what kind of fucking robocop nightmare psychedelic huxley-esque you know thing we're going to move into these people cannot be trusted with our brains i was just going to say like in terms of that question of like being a psychedelic person like i grew up like really neurodivergent and totally out like finding psychedelics in the psychedelic community was the first time i ever felt at home and included and like Mm like I had a spot at the table. And so as the field has shifted, even though we've all been around for 
you know, 15 years, you know, 10, 15 years all, you know, all on the team, we are increasingly being like edged out and, 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 and kind of excommunicated and ostracized for, you know, and so we're just trying to like, like keep a table where folks like us can still be comfortably sitting down in, in the room and, and, and not just seeding the conversation to these, you know, parties that have their, that want to kind of create the systems for the future. That said, the, the, the psychedelic movement that, that I was a part of, from Timothy Leary to Terrence McKenna, was also highly problematic in its own 100%. way. <laughs> Timothy was a difficult man. He was cult leader-ish in his house and his control. I had a I friend- I think Bichet would take it farther. <laughs> yeah, no, problematic is a nice word. I mean, and then he ended up going on tour with fucking Gordon Liddy, which would be like me going on tour with, with Steve Bannon, practically. I mean, um, Terrence McKenna, God bless, wonderful, yay, yay, yay. I love Terrence, he did great things, but we're gonna rise from the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness? I mean- Really? Or, or only the people who've had the proper DMT experience are going to make it through the bottleneck at the end of time and survive our transition through the strange attractor? I mean, that's Catholic salvation in a psychedelic lens. So, no, beautiful man, both great. I, I've got their pictures all over and their books and they changed me, but they were, they, psychedelics have always been problematic you know so it's up to us at each human stage. beings have always right. been problematic turns out you know so it's it's i mean partly because these movements were highly male they were just male run you know from, from the beginning they they not the beginning beginning but from the 60s on you know the women were cleaning the pot and the men were you know getting to to do the tripping or at least that's what was being valorized yes yeah, part 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 of the reason why I enjoy teaching psychedelic literature classes, where I'll teach, you know, Timothy Leary's High Priest and Carlos Castaneda is a separate reality, is because they did a fantastic job of narrate, narrating just how problematic they are or were, you know, and the brilliance. They're both there side by side, and yes. I think close reading through their literary traces that they've left behind does have a huge benefit and that we can kind of like recognize those dynamics clearly and, you know, kind of work towards building a psychedelic culture that learns from both sides of these, you know, the brilliant insights and the, the missteps and the things, you know, people weren't treated fairly and, you know, all of the kind of guru tendencies. So I think that there's a lot of like interesting work that can be done, but it includes, you know, valuing the humanities and psychedelic studies, I think is going to be really important for the future and like looking at trip reports and not just kind of hyper fetishizing the psychedelic scientists and neuroscientists, which is kind of what's been going on until recently. Right. Well, there is this 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 neuroscience fetishism now, which really it bothers me almost because it's like neuroscience and behavioral economics are kind of <laughs> intertwined in the way that all of this neuroscience is basically being used to figure out, well, how do we predict what people are going to do so we can sell them something or manipulate their behavior? All right, we keep dancing around the psychedelic surveillance <laughs> capitalism. So like yeah. we, we got to at least and and Please. this is this is very much like its own massive discussion, but like Palantir Peter Thiel, Palantir, and and patented psychedelics. 
Just those three things together should help people understand. If you've got a, a, a Rene Girard follower who believes you can somehow transcend the scapegoating society by moving an order of magnitude above them with money, technology, and power, and he's both has the largest human surveillance network ever assembled and the most invested in patenting mind control, potential mind control pharmaceuticals, you don't need to play nightmare scenarios to see what's We've already got it. I mean, when you talk about like Skinnerian like control and right, like looking at what's gone on with with Facebook, looking at what's gone on with Instagram, looking at the the, the studies as far as like the effects on people's mental well-being, look at looking at the way that like um sort of casino uh what do you call it dynamics or 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 logics right of like loot boxes and and slot machines have been parlayed into getting the sort of behavioral outcomes that people are looking at i mean Shoshana, Shoshana Zuboff's work on surveillance capitalism despite like her her lack of like a a solid coherent uh, anti-capitalist critique right. or like real grasp of capitalism. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's phenomenal for sort of like defining terms and setting some some really important landmarks on the terrain. But then when you see what's going on with, with psychedelics, like the fact that they're talking about building digital biomarkers, the fact that Mind Strong Health, the, the app that likes to advertise itself as the smartphone app that knows it's de- you're depressed before you do, right? How do they know that? They know that because they're watching and tracking all of your interactions on your smartphone with all of your apps, your word choices, your time on all of these different things. So then like you have these different psychedelic quote healthcare companies that are that are suggesting that you should you know, in addition to doing the therapy, you have a wearable, you have an app, you have AI enhanced this, that, and the other. Like we're already seeing insurance companies that are moving to uh, wearable enhanced tracking that, you know, you get an insurance policy reduced because you're wearing aware because you're willing to surrender all that data. They claim that they have a more accurate sense. Of course, all of that data can be uh, sold, traded. Uh, It can be, quote, de-anonymized, which, of course, like doesn't actually do anything. And then none of that's HIPAA protected. But but what this is doing is continuing the great American project from Anna Freud trying to help people conform, trying to get lesbians to not be lesbians so they conform to reality and so they could be happy, to Levittown understanding how to position homes to get people and to, to then realizing, okay, we've got to give people Valium because they're not happy in Levittown to, you know, now in the cyber age, well, we've just got to upscale our happiness uh, uh, chemicals and processes. Right. You've got ring for your front door, nest for inside of your house, and now the whole full suite of psychedelic apps for inside of your brain. Like like the the way that this is going is I the mean, only way we out are is living forward, in- my friend. The only way is <laughs> Jesus through Christ. more. You know? <laughs> you gotta get Monsanto to grow alfalfa on a rock is the only way we're gonna get out of climate change, right? <laughs> if if you believe the hype. Yeah. But the solutions that I talk about and that I would ar- argue that you talk about, I mean, I'm an anarcho-syndicalist deep down, which I found out because someone called me one and then I looked it up on Wikipedia <laughs> and went, oh, that sounds good. Uh, they meant it as an insult. And I was like, no, no, they sound really good. It's all good. Fine. Accept it. Label accepted. Uh, uh, th- when you look, when you read the Game B stuff, except for how they get there and their haughtiness and 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 the, the software stack, Game B sounds like an anarcho-syndicalist you know, they use the like Dunbars and all this, but it's a lot of little kibbutzes, you know, communicating nicely. It, 
I mean, it doesn't sound bad in itself, right? When I hear some of their sort of kibbutz-esque approaches or when I read Schmachtenberger's Consilience Project Manifest and I, you know, when I look at some of the holes that are there and then I compare it to what they're doing in the world and how they're oriented, you are literally destabilized. Like, you're an anarcho-syndicalist. Okay, cool. Like, what, shouldn't workers control the means of production? Like, the notion that there is some boss somewhere figuring out how to make people more precarious. And how does that lead to the to the right. That's the thing that's confusing to of, me. How do you do anarcho syndicalism on a DAO, and why would you do anarcho syndicalism on a DAO? Because the whole point for me, anarcho syndicalism, and I I fetishize um, solidarity at this point because I just I, that, it seems to me why be alive if it's not <laughs> those moments when you connect and the eye contact happens. That's the whole the whole thing, right? So then why have a DAO? You do anarcho syndicalism so that you get to have a life where you're experiencing solidarity with other people until you die you know how are people going to be confused enough to buy into your system unless there's a DAO how are they going to have the eye glaze moment where you get to sell them the meaning making unless there's a DAO or other sort of head scratching moments of I don't understand it but this person clearly does a, a, a DAO presupposes distrust I don't need a, I mean, if I'm working with you guys, I don't need a DAO because then I don't have the opportunity to actually tell, to, to tell Nishay, oh no, you should take more money. And she goes, no, no, I should take less. No, 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 you should take more. You know, and that's fun to do, you know, but. Have you seen Line Goes Up? Yeah. The, the, yeah, that's, that guy, I'm trying to get him on the, on this show. Yeah, that was. Do it. That was beautiful. It's a, it, for people who don't know, it was a, 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 a takedown of, of blockchain, NFTs, the whole thing, but done um, uh, very uh, uh, rigorously and, and beautifully. Comprehensive, <laughs> yeah, truly. Comprehensive. It's a comprehensive rant of epic proportions. <laughs> I want this to be the beginning. I, I originally didn't even wasn't even calling for you to do Team Human, and then I thought as long as we're going to do a call, I might as well share it. <laughs> but to, to reach out because I, I I found some other others that are that are other othering in a way that has elevated my. Um, you have elevated my game, and you've elevated my. Uh, 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 understanding my pattern recognition, my, my, uh, uh, my everything. I, I just want to say this here and now, like, <laughs> yes, yes, a thousand yeah, times yes. Yeah, invite Let's, me to any I, of the afterglows or things. I'll work, I'll listen. I, I want to play. I want to play too. I want to play too. Um, yeah. I found you. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds great. You've been on Team Human. Our guests today were Nishay Devineau and David Nichols of Symposia. You can find out more about them at symposia.com. That's P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A.com. Or go to teamhuman.fm and you can find links to them and their work and some of the stuff that we referred to during our conversation. Thanks for being on Team Human. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our opening music is by Fugazi, and the closing music under me is by Mike Watt on bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.